Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. And so there was this really effective ad campaign that went on. Uh, It's called the Crying Indian Ad. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. Look it up on YouTube. It's pretty iconic. There's this guy, there's an Indian, quote Indian. He's actually Italian, but you know, that's how we do. And uh, uh, he's paddling through through this, you know, uh, destroyed river environment. And he pulls up on this beach and he was walking across the road and there's litter everywhere in it he cries like one tear and he's like humans start pollution humans can end it welcome back to the conservation unfiltered podcast presented by conserve the wild i'm your host jason creighton and this is episode number 110 the myth of recycling now today i'm joined by guest greg daly Greg is the founder of a company called C-Bar, which we're going to talk about at the end. But why I really wanted Greg on was because we're going to talk about recycling. Now, a little bit of background about Greg. It's a little bit convoluted how he got to where he's at. Uh, He grew up on a farm in Idaho. He studied genetics in college and sold solar panels in Hawaii. He stumbled into this sort of beauty industry by accident, uh, where he actually built, helped to build one of the largest hair-related accounts on Instagram, and his the information that he gathered about recycling coupled with this sort of hair beauty industry crossover that he had a little bit, it, it really got him thinking about the beauty industry, the amount of plastics that we use, and the formation of this new company, C-Bar. So we're going to talk about, does recycling work? What can be recycled? People, a lot of people are like me and have a mandatory optional recycling where I pay for uh, recycling to happen in my community, but I don't have to recycle. So I do. But is is recycling really helping the plastic problem that we have? And what can we do to help reduce plastic waste in our world? And then, of course, we're going to find out a little bit about C-Bar and how it's trying, how that C-Bar as a company is trying to help this plastic waste problem. So let's get right into that conversation with Greg and learn how he got from a farm in Idaho to genetics, to solar panels, and then to the beauty industry. keep going a real quick question for you are you concerned with urban sprawl are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces if so an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our patreon page and become a monthly supporter if you like this podcast if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com 
slash conserve the wild. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is an episode that I am extremely excited for. Uh, I'm sure in the intro, you heard the excitement in my voice. Uh, going to be talking with Greg on the line here. Greg, how you doing? I am doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Oh, no, this, this like, I, like I've mentioned, and I will continue to mention, this is a topic that um, is forefront in my mind uh, all the time. And it's just the idea of recycling. Um, I feel like we're both probably around the same age. Uh, so we've, we've grown up with this idea of make the world a better place, recycle, right? Like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's all I, hammered. right. That's all I need to do. That's all we need to do to be basically an environmentalist. If we just recycle, uh, you know, we're making the world a better place. Yep. I mean, but we're going to get into like, is it really that simple? Uh, which spoiler alert, not quite. No. <laughs> um, but first I, my first question for you has to deal with what I talked about in the intro, and that's that you went from a farm in Idaho to genetics, to studying genetics, to selling solar panels in Hawaii, of all places, which I think is probably pretty lucrative, uh, and then into the beauty industry. How the heck do you, like, <laughs> how, how does someone's, you know, life plan sort of navigate that direction? I mean, plans giving me a little too much credit. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so to start off, so after I graduated with a degree in genetics, there's not really that many jobs in genetics unless you get a master's degree and want to do lab work. And I worked in a lab in college and I found out pretty quickly that I hated it. Like I loved the subject matter and learning about it, but I was like, I do not want to research this stuff. And I don't want to be, you know, in a lab pipetting stuff all day. Did that. I'm good. And so after college, I just got a, a job with a company that sold like obscene doorknobs. They're like $2,000 doorknobs. Like the, it was crazy. Like I went to some just gargantuan houses, like 19 bathroom houses, stuff like Anyway, so I was like kind of inundated with the excess of it all. And I was like, what the heck are we doing? And I had a friend from college who called me one day. He's like, hey, so I got this job selling solar panels in Hawaii. And I think you'd be good at it. And I was like, talk to me more. I was living in Michigan at the time. And it was, you know, end of winter. I was like, let's, let's talk about this. And so um, I flew out there and kind of ran a few uh, appointments and sold a few solar panels. I was like, I can make this work. Plus it's in Hawaii. So uh, we packed up and moved to Hawaii, like not that long after that. Like I put in like my two weeks notice at work, like two weeks later and we were in Hawaii a week after that. So we just kind of like went and uh, that was great. Uh, the main problem was at the time, the utility company was having some really strong backlash against net metering. And so it was taking like a year, sometimes a year and a half to get solar panels installed. So you'd sell them, you'd make 10%. And then you'd have to wait a year and a half to get paid the rest. So as you can imagine, Hawaii is expensive on 10% of your income. That only works for so long. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so we came back 
uh, well, we decided to come back to the mainland because uh, my grandma had actually just passed away. And we were at my mom's house. Well, my grandma and grandpa and my mom lived next to each other on the farm. Anyway, we were, um, we were there and my, my 10 month old son at the time was with my mom and he at, at my grandma's house and they were cleaning it out. And he put his, both his hands on the wood burning stove and got third degree burns on both his hands. And so we had to go to the nearest burn unit, which was in Salt Lake city, which is about eight hours away. And we were staying in the Ronald McDonald house. And my cousin at the time was, he had this Instagram business. He was working on Instagram and I had a lot of time and no job. And I was like, Hey, what's, what can we do here? And so, um, we started working together and, and had quite a bit of success, um, promoting things on Instagram. And then one day he calls me, he's like, look at this page. It's about hair. It's growing so fast. And I was like, dude, nobody cares about hair. Like who, like who cares about that? He's like, people look, it's growing fast. We're like, that's so weird. They're just pictures. Like they're not even doing videos. Cause at that time we, we were really clued in. This was probably 2015 ish. We were really clued in on the whole, uh, Instagram video thing. It was new, but it was just popping off like crazy. And so we just started posting these videos about hair that we would find on, on Instagram and the pages just exploded, you know, to like three to 5 million or three to 6 million followers in that range on three different pages. And through that, we met all these hairstylists and we got to be friends with them. And, um, we started teaching them how to make videos and grow their Instagrams. And we started helping them make, um, yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. So we got to meet like all these, all the biggest um, influencers in the hair space. And we ended up buying this hair care company that had been on Shark Tank. And um, we sold that just like a year ago. And so that's how I got, I kind of stumbled into it. I didn't even know the beauty industry existed. Like I, I joke that the only thing I knew about the beauty industry before kind of stumbling into it was that song from Greece, like beauty school dropout. <laughs> like that was it. I didn't, my mom didn't go to a salon. My mom would like do my grandma's hair and she would perm her hair in our bathroom. And I knew when that happened, but that was like the extent of my knowledge about hair care. Like your mom does it in the bathroom. I knew about barbers. I'd go to the local barber, but you know, he had one chair and you know, a dead elk on the wall. Like, it's not like the beauty industry. <laughs> well, I have to say, um, you know, being part of it now, uh, you're, you're a good candidate for it with, uh, you know, showing that you should be in there with that nice, beautiful long hair that I'm looking at here on the Zoom call. Well, I started growing my hair out actually, because I got really interested in ingredients, like in, in the products. And I took quite a bit of biochem in college for my genetics degree. And so I got really in interested in the ingredients and I would bring stuff home all the time. I'd be like, honey, try this out. My wife. And she got so sick of it. She's like, I am never trying out another product you bring home ever again. I was like, fine, I'll grow my hair out. And so that's why my hair is long that she hates it. My wife hates it. I'm like, well, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> You didn't want to be a guinea pig anymore. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Let, let's get into the little more conservation aspect. Of this. That's a great yeah. start. I, I can't, man, I can't ever foresee myself getting into like a space like that. But, um, you know, sometimes like throws your curveballs and you just roll with them and you end up somewhere and it ends up working itself out. So yep. 
let's let's focus on this whole idea of recycling here um Perfect. can you can you just give us I, I know that there's a ton of like nuance that goes into modern recycling but can you just sort of give us like the the, the 10,000 foot view of recycling in the united states like how does it work like i take my stuff i put it out in the curb and then what happens to it yeah well i think it's really important to take one step back further from that and look okay. at kind of where it started, where the origin of the modern recycling movement. And I find this incredibly fascinating. So in the 60s, 70s, um, trash was starting to build up everywhere. Rivers were catching on fire. It was getting pretty bad. And all of the people alive at that time, like if you're alive, like the people in their 70s, in the 60s, they were alive in like, well, they were alive in the 1800s. You know what I mean? Like they knew what it was like, the pristine beauty of this country. And so there's starting to be this backlash. And so there was this really effective ad campaign that went on. Uh, it's called the crying Indian ad. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. Look it up on YouTube. It's pretty iconic. There's this guy, there's an Indian quote, Indian. He's actually Italian, but you know, that's how we do. And uh, uh, he's paddling through the, through this, you know, uh, destroyed river environment. And he pulls up on this, beach and he was walking across the road and there's litter everywhere and it he cries like one tear and he's like humans start pollution humans can end it and it's this really strong sentiment like uh you know they're showing videos of people throwing stuff out their window of their car and it's like really doing this effective job of showing all of this consumer trash that gets thrown out and it did an incredibly good job of pinning the responsibility of the waste on the consumer who's not disposing of it properly. And if you look, so it was put together by an organization called Keep America Beautiful. And if you look at who funded them, it's a coalition of bottling companies, plastic bottlers primarily. And so they wanted to take the responsibility of the consumption of their goods and externalize it, take it from them and put it on to the consumer. It's their fault. Because before that, like Coke, who's now the biggest plastic polluter in the world, at least ocean plastic polluter. There's a bunch of studies, they count trash and Coke and Pepsi always come one too in that. And uh, uh, Coke used to like take glass bottles, give them to you, you, know, you put a deposit down and when you return them, you got some money back and they would wash them and refill them and reuse them. That, like they didn't recycle per se. Like there's a reason that in the adage, reduce, reuse, recycle, the recycling comes last. It's the least effective. So what happens when you uh, recycle? So let's go back to your question, the curb. So now you've been blamed for all this recycling. You want to do better, or you've been blamed for all of this pollution and trash usage, and you want to do better. So you take all of this consumer packaging that we get, which is just an asinine amount, I think it's like 140 million tons a year of plastic is produced just for packaging. So it's crazy. It's, it's like 35, I think, percent of the total amount of plastic that's produced, period, is for packaging. And like some ungodly number, like 90 plus percent of it is disposed of within six months. So it's not really good use for plastic, if you will. So you take it, you're trying to do good. You've been told your whole life, all through elementary school, recycle, good people recycle, blah, blah, blah. You put it in your bin and recycle it. So I think the 
best way to tell the story is through numbers. So, um, cause I think it's recycling is really a tale of like four recycling streams. So you've got paper, you've got metal and aluminum, um, you got glass and you got plastic. Those are kind of the four main things that we recycle. And, uh, at least like on a, and a home level. Mm-hmm. And so paper, so paper, 81% of paper gets recycled. That's pretty good. Yeah. I feel like that's a good number. That's a great number. And to me, what that says is that recycling paper is making somebody money because at the end of the day, like nothing happens in our, in our world, unless somebody's making money at it. That's kind of, I don't know. That's the cynic in me. Um, probably, probably smart to think that, right? Yeah. There are people who are exceptions to the rule, but they are going against the flow. They are, you know, Mm-hmm. The default view is people are going to do it for money. So somebody's making money recycling paper. Um, aluminum, which is an amazingly recyclable substance, it costs a ton of resources to extract and refine aluminum, just ungodly amounts of electricity specifically to refine aluminum. But to recycle it is super cheap and you can recycle it infinitely. So paper, you can only recycle it a couple of times. Every time they recycle it, they downcycle it. But at the end of its life cycle, it just becomes compost and cool. Like that's good too. That, that completes the cycle. Aluminum, it gets recycled. It can be recycled infinitely, but only about 35% of metals are recycled. Hmm. So not great, but it's not nothing. Um, glass, which glass is again, infinitely recyclable. It's got some downsides in the colors that make it kind of difficult to recycle. Plus it breaks, which is kind of a problem. Um, but 31% of glass gets recycled. So that's not great, but decent. If we look at plastic and this is plastic packaging specifically, um, 13.6% of plastic packaging gets recycled. Only Ooh. 9% of plastic overall gets recycled. Ooh, that's low. That's low. And it's, I think it's because of three things. So I, I think if you break it down into how easy something is to recycle, how profitable something is to recycle, and how, like, I guess, easy and complicated are kind of the same thing. But, um, if you look at how easy something is to recycle paper, it doesn't really matter if it gets wet. It doesn't have to be super clean. It has to be kind of clean. They, they just mix it up in some water and make it into new paper. Um, aluminum, you put it in a hot furnace, it melts. Uh, glass, same thing. Hot furnace, it melts. You make new stuff. Plastic, on the other hand, they've got this, like seven plastic numbers. So you have to sort it because each polymer is different. And they have varying degrees of recyclability. Some of them aren't recyclable at all. Others are very easy to recycle. Um, The way plastic products are produced, they mix them. So like your Coke bottle, the cap and the bottle are two different types. So that little Mm -hmm. ring that you leave around the Coke bottle when you recycle it, that makes it difficult to recycle. And so um, I was talking to a couple of people who uh, work at a recycling facility and they said, about 25 or 30% of the plastic that gets like recycled just gets thrown away for various reasons. Either it's not profitable, not recyclable, um, or just it's dirty or, or it's mixed, mixed plastic. And so those complicating things, but I think the biggest part about 
the reason why plastic isn't recycled more is it's not profitable. It costs a whole heck of a lot more money to take that from your house, clean it, melt it down, recycle it, than it does to pump oil and ship it. And uh, um, I mean, and sometimes, and if oil prices go really high, that's not true. But when oil prices dip, all of those plastic recyclers go out of business. So it's too cyclical for them ever to make the investment in doing this. And so there's just all of these factors for plastic that go that go against it being a good material for recycling. And it can only be recycled once or twice before it has to be downcycled. The, the polymers break down. And so like paper, it can only be recycled a couple of times before it is useless. But unlike paper, once it reaches that point, it's only good for like landfill liner or something like that. So it can only be downcycled to something else. So I say that recycling plastic is just throwing it away twice. Like it's, it's better than throwing it away once. Like it cuts your plastic consumption by half in that scenario, but we need to do a whole lot better than cutting our plastic usage by half. I feel like I feel like you already led with this in the beginning as far as you know the the whole like initial recycling campaign and who funded it. But I mean, we know the plastic's a problem, right? But like is it really consumers that are are to blame? I mean, it, it we're a you're a consumer, you're consuming things, like you're you're purchasing things, right? Um, even if I want to reduce the amount of plastic packaging is that even really possible though right like when i go to the store it seems like everything is in plastic it, it's hard for me to find items that i need that aren't in plastic even sometimes when they don't need to be so i mean like plastic like bananas wrapped yeah like i've seen crazy <laughs> like, like yeah like i get if i go to the grocery store um and i want to buy a zucchini not during peak season you know growing season locally it's going to be wrapped in plastic. Like if I, if I need the zucchini, there's, I don't have another option in the middle of winter. Um, so, I mean, who, who's the blame? Well, I think, I think it's everybody's to blame. Consumers have allowed, they can vote with their dollars, right? So they have technically allowed the manufacturers to do this, but the manufacturers have made a concerted effort to use plastic packaging because it saves them a lot of money. Um, like it costs Coke like a penny to make one of those bottles, something crazy cheap versus taking a glass bottle, washing it, refilling it, sending it back and forth, all that weight shipping those glass bottles back and forth. So the manufacturers absolutely pushed plastic. And before consumers really were educated on the downsides of plastic, Plastic's only really been around since like the sixties, like the first plastic, like Bakelite was like patented in 1954 ish. Like this is a new problem and, uh, and plastic consumption or production. If you look at the graph, just like around 1980, just like whew, hockey sticks straight up and it's still going like there's no end in sight for that graph up, which is pretty sad. But to answer that question, like whose fault is it? Like, I would say 
primarily the manufacturers because with just a little bit of caring on their end. So like just take the Coke bottle and the different plastic for the lid, for example. Coke with one decision to make, to use a different polymer for their lid and the bottle could make that bottle infinitely more recyclable. So, but they don't. Now, what they expect the consumer is to rip that little ring off every time. If you've ever done that, it's not easy. So like, and it's not really tenable. Like, why are we allowing these big companies to externalize those costs? And if you look, this goes across like so many industries, like pollute, like basically all types of pollution. Companies have systematically taken the costs of their pollution and push them onto the environment or onto the consumer because it pads their profits. If they don't, if they aren't responsible for um, the end of life cycle of their product, like they're going to do anything they can to save money at the beginning of the life cycle of the product. So um, if you come back to the, my cynical money view, like they're doing it because they make more money this way with one rule change, we can make it. So all you have to do is say, Hey, you are now responsible for your externalities and you have to pay for them. All right. So here, here's my sort of cynical viewpoint, um, you know, from a consumer aspect, if the companies don't care, um, you know, where their this plastic ends up, um, you know, I purchase my Coke, I drink my Coke. Why should I care where, where this Coke bottle ends up, right? The company doesn't care. Why should I care? Um, what's the whole reasoning for even being worried about this? Well, I think just because, you know, one guy's an asshole doesn't mean you both need to be <laughs> like, <laughs> um, because you're better than that. Like, I think that's the big reason. And not only that, we should like, <clears throat> ultimately this, um, most countries now are democracies. And I believe that every place, you know, needs to be run for its citizens. Like what's the point of running a country for the businesses that are in that country? Like businesses aren't, they're made up. They're fictitious, you know, entities that only exist because a bunch of people agreed that they exist. So like, why are we doing what they want versus what's good for everybody else? And I think that comes down to like, I don't know if we can rely on governments to regulate businesses on the environment we're in right now. Like all politicians are beholden to the businesses. So I think what you really can do is start voting with your dollars. There's a lot. There are getting to be more and more and more companies who are offering alternatives. And you're right, especially like even two years ago, you would have been hard pressed to find plastic free solutions. And even today, it's hard. Like you have to look, they're not there, but they're coming and they'll come a lot faster if more people look for them. All right. So uh, you mentioned that there's these companies out there that are trying to reduce the amount of plastic that are out there. Um, you know, I have some, some students in my classes that have, for example, you know, instead of using plastic wrap, they're using, you know, a food wrap that's basically made out of bee wax, uh, beeswax mm -hmm. and, and some things like that. So like, what are some things that people who care 
about the environment, right? Because this plastic is going to eventually end up in the environment, whether it's locally or in the ocean. We we're now finding you know microplastics in fish that we eat and in the water that we're in drinking. The rain, right? right? So if if someone cares about that and someone wants to try to make a difference, a way that they can, what can they do? What sh- what kind of products or companies should they be looking for? Well. Most of the plastic that we use, like I'm not against plastic in principle. Plastic is kind of a miracle substance, really. It's light, it's cheap, it's durable, it doesn't corrode. Like it's fantastic. Like if you think about what it is, like go back 200 years and give somebody a five gallon bucket, they would like go crazy for it. They'd be like, this is the most miraculous thing I've ever seen. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we, we take all of these things and we just use them once and throw them away. And uh, um, I think that's the biggest thing is start thinking about not re- like reducing and reusing. We'll start with the first two. Like recycling is a last resort. Recycling is I didn't buy what I didn't need. I reused everything I had to buy as many times as I could till it broke and I recycle it then. Like, um, so like just think about the stuff that you buy regularly every day that comes in plastic. So like just thinking off the top of my head, like spaghetti boxes, like how many spaghetti boxes have that little plastic window? So you'll buy a little more like kind of silly. Like I think a picture would be okay. You know, we can make that all cardboard. (laughs) Um, so stuff like that. And the reason companies put the little plastic window is because they've done tests. And people buy it more when they see it. Don't buy the other brands, buy the ones that aren't using it. Like they're going to change as people's consumers behavior changes. They will change. That's really the, the one thing you can do for sure is vote with your dollars. Cause that's the only language that people running these big multinational companies really understand. They say like, like how many times have you heard we're going to reduce our plastic usage by 35% in 20 years, like BFD. And then by time 20 years runs around, like nobody knows if they did it or not. Odds are they probably didn't unless consumers keep demanding it. Yeah. It it makes me think of like Amazon, for example, right? Like you, we are a country that buys a ton of stuff off Amazon. And, you know, let's say you order, 10 things over six different days, those are most likely going to come in individual cardboard boxes, right? Where really, if we just had one day that your Amazon order was delivered, they could combine stuff into one box or maybe just two boxes. And Amazon's done that now. They have, you know, you can pick a day where your stuff gets delivered. Now, does that sort of fly in the face of the sort of prime aspect of it where you get it in two days? Yeah, but, you know, you can also select certain things to be, you know, delivered more quickly uh, than that, you know, so and and that I feel like came from people saying like, this is ridiculous. Look how big this box is. Look at all the plastic bubble wrap that's inside for this one thing. Whenever, you know, you could have put four of these things in that box instead of sending me four different boxes. Yeah, I completely agree. I think Amazon has done a few small things like that, that at a company their size makes a big difference. So let's say you go 100% zero waste. It's a lot of work, but people do it. 
there are people who have gone hundred percent zero waste and I commend them. Like, it's pretty cool, but they work hard for it. Mm-hmm. What do they save? 2000 pounds of waste a year. I made that number up. I have no idea, but it's not a big number. If Amazon improves like their waste by 1%, if they reduce their waste by 1%, think of the difference that would make probably the same as 2000, 3000 households going completely zero waste. And that's just a 1% change. And so that's where I think like the best, the biggest bang for the buck is going to be at the beginning end of that life cycle, because they're the ones who decide what get made what gets made in the first place. Because once it gets made, like it's made, it's something's got to happen to it, and we're only disposing of it at the end of its life cycle. And to say that, like, you know, the person who started a project isn't responsible for it, but the person who ended it, it's like if you eat the last cookie, like you ate all the cookies, right? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's like what they're trying to convince us of. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and like you're saying, you, these, especially large corporations, they're, they're only looking basically at one reason to make any change. And that's for money for the most part, right? Unless they have some sort of conservation or um, environmental ethic built into their mission, they're doing it based solely on, on monetary value. So, you know, they, you know, a company like Amazon might want people to do this because that means they're purchasing less cardboard for less boxes, oh, yeah. right? So that's, that can help them from a financial aspect, but what can really help them um, or, or force them into that decision would be, like you said, if consumers require it and I'm not going to buy as much stuff on Amazon unless you start reducing your cardboard or your plastic use or something like that. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it takes the financial aspect out of it and, you know, sort of forces it because, Hey, we're going to make less money because people are going to be purchasing well, less unless we make this change. Yeah. It changes the dynamic of the, cause they're still making less money. It's still a money thing, but it's changing the dynamic from losing sales to pinching, you know, from pinching pennies to losing sales mm-hmm. and they're going to pick more sales all, every time. So I, th- I think that, um, I mean, I firmly believe it's on the end of the producer, like the produ- producer is responsible. Um, things like bottle deposits have been fantastically effective at reducing um, waste, like reducing or increasing the returns of aluminum cans and bottles, which are a huge percent of the waste in this country. And who fights those so hard, like keep America beautiful is one of the biggest opponents of that. Their stated mission is to keep America beautiful, but they're the biggest opponent of one of the most effective and basically free ways to reduce litter and trash. So, so I mean, could this be, money. could this be a, a legislative issue? Like, is this something that we, the people like, okay, yeah, we can try to our best to reduce our consumption um, so that stuff isn't produced, right? Or change the way things are packaged. Um, But then like, can we, like, would it be beneficial for us to approach our, you know, legislators either at the state or national level and, and say, we want legislation to try to reduce the amount of plastic. Is that a viable option? Well, the cynic in me says, I mean, ideally, yes, 
but the cynic in me says it's not going to happen. Like, I don't know if you've noticed what Congress does, but it's mostly uh, make some money for themselves. Yeah, so maybe, I mean, maybe I, state legislators can, but on that front, like, like California, Texas, mm-hmm. Florida, and New York probably could. The rest of them, probably not. Like, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, right? Like, I know that, um, you know, senators and, and representatives at the federal level, they, they do oftentimes cater to, you know, who's paying for their, their campaign, right? Who's, who's doing that, which oftentimes is corporations because, you know, what, there's a very small, although growing handful of American citizens that have millions of dollars to spend on a political candidate. Yeah. Um, however, that being said, you know, just in the conservation space, right? Like conservation and, and environmental, some environmental um, policies are the things that have been actually passed whenever we've had these sort of very partisan politics in the last, you know, 15 years or so. Like, it seems like conservation is the one thing that, that people can agree upon, um, you know, because, you know, the old saying of like, who doesn't want cleaner water and cleaner air and not seeing litter on the ground, right? So, Again, I ask, is it is it viable if if enough of us, right, say, hey, we want it, is it is it a viable option? Is it something that's worth pursuing? Absolutely, it's worth pursuing. Absolutely, it's worth pursuing. Like, because the worst thing that can happen is you won't succeed. But if you do succeed, it could be huge. Like, absolutely, it's worth pursuing. I think we should pursue it really strongly. Um, I... I'm a skeptic on that front, like <laughs> that it'll, that it'll happen just because we've been trying to do it. Like I live in Washington state. And if you drive around Washington state, like you look at it and it's like these big, gorgeous green forests everywhere. And then you get up close and you notice their rows of Doug fir that they're basically monocropped Douglas fir and uh giant, they're, cornfields that grow for 40 years between harvests (laughs) and um like they still clear cut like people think of washington state as this like really green progressive place and it's got some of that but like still the the lumber industry has huge sway over the government and part of that's because the government owns a huge amount of forest that they're logging too because they fund a lot of the state that way and it's just such a big change and there's so many like people embedded in that pipeline of making money off of this call it what it is exploitation of the planet either by consuming too much or throwing stuff away or there's a lot of headwinds let me put it that way there's a lot of headwinds and to make it so people start changing we have to force them from both angles, like scare them on the legislation front. Hopefully they'll change, but that might be coming for them and scare their pocketbook by reducing their sales, by not selling things. Like it isn't all of the above approach for sure. Um, I just, it's been like looking back through the history of like conservation in this country, especially like bitter hard fought wins so many little, little ones, and they've made a difference. Like they absolutely have it. We don't have rivers catching on fire. Smog is 
way better than it used to be like there's a and a lot of the come from came from legislation we need to do so much so fast in my opinion that like congress and our our legislators have been letting us down and letting the planet down by kicking this bucket down the road or kicking this can down the road because I don't know. Are they like hoping that they die before it becomes a problem? Like, I'm not sure what their deal is. Like, it seems well, pretty obvious to me. To be fair, the, there are quite a few older individuals um, in the Senate and the House. So they they might not be around whenever, you know, the whenever the worst of it comes to bear. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you on being skeptical, right? Like, I'm skeptical on a lot of things. You know, in my head, I'm thinking that. Um, but I, I try my best to be as optimistic, and I do try to look, force myself to look through the optimistic lens. You know, I, I look at it as you know, even if legislation doesn't get passed, if if enough of us can call for the legislation um, that we're looking for, uh, at at the very minimum companies are going to take notice and the rest of the public that might not have even thought of it being an issue are all of a sudden now aware of it. And even if they only make small changes, enough small changes equals, you know, a, from a, from enough people equal a big change from a small number of people. So Absolutely. I, that's the education the, standpoint of yeah. it is, is very valuable. Like, I mean, I know like my journey into caring about this stuff. Like I was, when I lived in Hawaii, I was free diving a lot. And one day I saw a plastic bag tangled up in a massive fishing line that was hooked through the back fin of a sea turtle. And I was like, what the heck? Like, what are we doing? And, uh, you know, I swam up and cut it loose with my dive knife, but, you know, I was like, I'm going to do something about this. And for like a really long time, the only thing I changed was choosing paper over plastic at the grocery store. I mean, was that a difference? Yeah. But it also like started me on like a longer journey. That's, um, you know, now like me personally, I've picked up several thousand pounds of ocean trash just because I've become interested in it and like realized like how bad it is. So yes, individuals can make big differences, big changes by just doing something and getting people around them. Um, and they should absolutely pressure their legislators. Absolutely. Um, and we can do more ourselves beyond just recycling. Like everybody has the power to do a little bit more. If you go on a walk, stuff your pockets full of trash. Like, like that makes a big difference. That's, that was like, but that, but that and grocery, like switching my grocery bags is all I did for like years. That was my conservation. And you know, I knew I needed to do more, but I didn't. It's a journey, you know, and, and everyone, you know, goes at a different pace with that journey and it's spurred by different moments, right? Um, for yep. you, you know, it's seeing those plastic bags and fishing line on a sea turtle. For me, it's, you know, within the past three years, um, picking up uh, in excess of 24 Mylar balloons off of our family property. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a journey and it's, it's different for everyone. Um, before, before we go, uh, I do want you to tell everyone about C-Bar. Uh, I took a look at, at some information about C-Bar and it's interesting. So tell everyone about it and, um, you know, finish up with a little bit of where we can, where they can find your products and learn more about it. Yeah. So like we talked about earlier, I stumbled into the beauty industry and 
it was after I'd been in Hawaii. And, you know, so I was, I was awakened to the plastic problem and in the beauty industry, like people use just so much plastic. Like it's incredible. The average household uses 72 bottles of shampoo and conditioner a year. What? That's what I thought. That's a no, no way. No way. I don't listen. I, I go through one and a half large Sam's club size head and shoulders bottle a year. (laughs) So now it could be, that could be based on, um, like smaller bottle sizes. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're doing off eight ounces. I don't know. That's a step that's shampoo conditioner and like a leave-in conditioner that a lot of women use. So 72 bottles on average. And I thought the same thing. I was like, no way. That's way too high. It's insane. But, um, like they did this study that one might've been, that study might've been in the UK, but it's not, you know, we're not that much different. If anything, we're probably more wasteful, though they do probably buy smaller bottles. So who knows? But anyway, tons of plastic packaging and you use it for like a month or so and you throw it out. And there's, there's a lot of products coming on the market that are like, people are getting awakened to it and people are going back to like bar soaps, right? Because bar soap doesn't have that. Um, regular bar soap is horrible for your hair. It's got a pH of like 10 or so your hair's pH is four or five. So it's like vinegar and baking soda every time you wash your hair with bar soap. So don't do that. If, I mean, if you're chopping your, if your hair's like an inch or two long and you're chopping it off every three months, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But if you want your hair to be long at all, like you got to use a pH balanced shampoo and nerd nerding out on that. But <laughs> so, um, so we sold our hair care company that had been on shark tank and I was kind of, I'd gotten interested in products and trying to reduce plastic. And this whole idea came into my head for C bar. So C bar, we make shampoo and conditioner concentrates and they come in like a twist up deodorant tube that's made out of plastic. And the reason we did that is because, well, plastic's amazing for your showers. Metal sucks in showers, glass sucks in showers, you know, for different reasons. One rusts, one breaks your toe. And, uh, um, and I hate bar soap. I just don't like how it gets gross in your shower. And a lot, there's a reason everybody switched to liquid shampoos and liquid bar soaps. Like there's a reason because bar soap's got some downsides. And so we put them in these little twist up deodorant tubes. Uh, they look kind of like this, if you can see the. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is not the final packaging, but um, it's the one it I looks have on my like desk. A, a large version of like eye black. If anyone's a, a sports. Yeah, person. or a or a um, chapstick. Chapstick. Yeah. Yeah, like a big chapstick. Big. Yeah. And it um, and so you can use that, and it each one of these, and it's it's about two and a half, three ounces, seventy five grams whatever that is in ounces. And, uh, um, it lasts for as long as two or three bottles of shampoo. Hmm. So first it cuts your shampoo bottle usage by about two to three a factor of two to three, but we send refills for this in cardboard. So you only buy one of these plastic tubes. It keeps your bar from melting and getting gross in your shower. It keeps it from getting slippery, keeps it from getting so small. You can't use it. And, uh, um, also actually makes your bar last longer because it doesn't melt in the shower and you just rub it on your head and it lathers up just like normal shampoo. It's all the same ingredients in like a salon quality shampoo. We just took out the water 
And then we call the C-bar because for every one that we sell, we pick up a pound of ocean trash. And our goal was to do something that I don't think neutral is good enough. We can't have neutral. We can't have carbon neutral. We can't have plastic neutral. We can't get there by being neutral. We have to be better than neutral. And so C-bar not only reduces your plastic usage dramatically. So by, you know, even for you, two to three Sam's clubs a year, it cuts out two to three of those big bottles a year. Plus it would pick up two to three pounds of ocean trash. And it just makes it a net positive for the world. That's the whole idea. Um, we just wanted to take something people do every day already. Everybody washes their hair most days and turn it into a force for good. So every time you wash your hair, it's picking up a little bit of ocean trash. And that's kind of our, that's our goal is to take things that, like you're talking about, how do you find products that use less plastic? Our goal is to be a solution to one of those. Bar, bar shampoos exist and there's a lot of really good ones out there, but a lot of people don't switch because they don't like bar soap. So this was our idea. Is it totally plastic free? No, but it can eliminate almost all of your plastic usage in your shower. There's no reason this thing can't last five years, 10 years, you know, plastic doesn't really go bad. Yeah, man, that's a, that's a great idea. You know, like I said, it's hard to eliminate 100% of plastic use, but to, like you said, instead of trying to recycle what we buy, trying to reuse and, and repurpose, that's, that's really um, should be our first and, and main uh, way to go about with plastic. So where can people find C-Bar? Where, where can they purchase it? Where can they learn more about it? Yeah, so um, our website is cbar.com, like Ocean C-S-E-A, cbar.com. Um, you can follow us on Instagram. That's mostly where we post, but Instagram um, and uh, Facebook at C-Bar Cleans is our handle there. I mean, it's the same on like TikTok and other things as well, but, um, I've only posted a few TikToks. Nothing makes I, me feel I'm old not, like TikTok. I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be seeing them. I'm a little too old, too old for TikTok, oh. but all those links you can, anyone that's interested, um, if you don't want to, you know, type away, you can just click that link in the episode details. It's going to be down there for you. It actually ends up being cheaper than even everything, but the most low quality shampoo because it lasts so long because your your shampoo is 80 to 90 percent water and they're you're basically dumping bottled water on your head in the shower and not only is that like extremely wasteful in big bottles and transportation costs and um you know it's it's kind of a con if you ask me like they make you feel like you're buying a lot when you're just buying a bunch of water for a shower in water <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Hey, uh, Greg, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, I encourage everyone to go and at least check out C-Bar. Uh, if not, maybe, you know, make a purchase, try to reduce your plastic intake and, um, or plastic use. Uh, and eventually your plastic intake is those microplastics getting everything. So, uh, Greg, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much for having me. I love talking about this stuff. I think the more, the more we talk about it, the more people are going to have that aha moment and uh, start making those changes. I agree 100%. 
I want to thank Greg for taking the time out to talk about this incredibly complex subject. Recycling on the surface sounds really, really good. But then when you start really looking into the nitty gritty, you start to realize maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. Those stats were eye-opening to me that, that Greg listed about how much of the recycled materials actually get recycled, even just how many times something like plastics can be recycled, which is not infinite. I would really invite all of you to sort of look through your home, look at what you're buying and how much waste you're creating. Um, as I mentioned, it's really hard, you know, uh, with sort of today's society and economics to reduce our, the amount of plastics and amount of, of waste that we're producing. You know, when you're ordering stuff from Amazon and you can order multiple things and they're coming in two days, I mean, that's all great, but eventually those cardboard boxes really pile up and, and there's really only so much recycling that can happen with those cardboard boxes. And that's if you're even recycling them, right? Or the company that you're giving them to actually recycles them. So, you know, it doesn't have to be this big wholesale change. It could be something as simple as, you know, just having your Amazon delivery day where all your, your deliveries come on a single day. Um, it could be, you know, opting for things at the grocery store, like a banana that doesn't need to be individually wrapped in plastic. Don't buy the ones that are individually wrapped in plastic. Uh, it could be, you know, buying fruits and making your own fruit salad instead of buying the pre-made fruit salad that's going to be more expensive anyways, and then also be packaged in plastic, right? So there's all kinds of different stuff we can do, little things that we can do that if we all just chipped in just 5%, we could make a huge difference to reduce especially that plastic waste that, that is just constantly getting into the environment. Picking it up, obviously, whenever you see it on the grounds, you know, leave no trace type thing. That was, that is probably the easiest thing that we can do. Until next week, can you all just do me one thing? If you choose not to worry about your consumption, please just do one thing. Get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.